Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast of the IDB's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. I'm Alex. I'm Kleena. I'm Sean. And this week we're doing a special episode for St. Patrick's Day where we're going to discuss Stanley Kubrick's Bowering Linden. And in order to help us do that, we thought we'd draft in three experts who you heard, Alex, Kleena and Sean, from When Irish Eyes Are Watching, because the film obviously has a very strong Irish element to it. Yeah. Despite being based on a British novel, directed by a British American actor, it's a British American film director, and starring an American leading man, it's still well, the, 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 this. This is a time, um, like as much as we don't like to admit it, where officially speaking, we're both Irish and British, um, in 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 the sense that um, no, no no Irish person is recorded as entering Ellis Island, for example. Yeah, really? I've heard this. Yeah. 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 It's like Irish, British, or they have it down as like there's a particular classification for the entry forms and things like that. Yeah, because you can't just kind of um, yeah, claim uh, nationality if it's not recognised by as a country. 19th <laughs> century CIA or, or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Starting off <laughs> on, on a very a bomb note. Oh, I was also, also going to suggest the only pure Irish movie on the list is Room and that's a bit of a downer for our St. Patrick's Day special episode. Yeah. So we thought we'd sort of go with... Um, it's weak, inspired by Joseph Fritz so we can't claim him. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew, for that. But yeah, we thought we'd jump in with with um, Stanley Kubrick's, obviously, Barry Lyndon, which yeah. is positioned in his filmography between Clockwork Orange and The Shining, uh, largely um, underrated at the time, somewhat still controversial among Kubrick aficionados. Mm. It is, of the Kubrick films that are still list- that are currently on the list, the last film to enter and the lowest ranked. Um, it's in the 220s, I think, at the moment. It came in one month after the director's death. Really? Yeah, and it's sort of interesting how it's been reevaluated and reassessed in the years since. But yeah. I mean, is it worth discussing how people came to this? Because it's always yeah. interesting when you have the 250 and you have films that are that old, that are older than the people in this room, like how we first watched them and how we remember seeing them. And sort yeah, of... and also, like, com- coming, coming from the context of like when, when Irish eyes are watching, mm. they did. They, 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 um... The Irish aspect to it is kind of like, it, it sort of stands out. I mean, I think when I was getting into films and, you you know, fairly soon as a young teenager, I suppose, getting into sort of films and you're like, oh, okay, we've got Scorsese. You might maybe start with Spielberg because you've got the child ones and then you get into maybe Scorsese or whatever. But Kubrick is one of those ones that once you start getting into film, you sort of immediately are drawn to because of he's created all these, like he's almost created something that's considered anyway a masterpiece in like so many different genres and all that kind of thing but interestingly like i found i saw 2001 very early on i think i saw the shining quite early on in my life but this one i didn't don't think i saw until much later into my 20s because i don't know it just didn't seem to be one that was talked about in the same sort of excitement as some of the others like clockwork orange or as i say like the, the but would you hear people in Ireland talking about this one specifically because it was filmed in Ireland? No. I mean, I know the other ones are more sort of yeah. big classics that everyone knows. I think I came across this one as sort of like, and being intrigued because it had that Irish aspect, aspect yeah. to it, and finding that it wasn't really being talked about in the same breath as some of the other Kubrick well, ones. There are probably several reasons why we don't talk about it as an Irish film. Mm. Um, most obvious being that Kubrick, having been burnt when he did um, A Clockwork Orange, in that... 
he was attacked in the press after there were a series of murders in Britain that people claimed were copycat killings based on the film. Yeah. He famously pulled the film from circulation, which is remarkable for a director to be able to do that with a distributor. Yeah. Um, and as a result, one of the things he did when he was making Barry Lyndon was he made a conscious choice not to have the press around documenting it. Um, to the point where there are very few production stills and stuff like that behind the scenes. There's actually some interesting stuff that came out for the 40th anniversary that was shot by a farmer on whose land they were filming this. Like oh, that's, really? These are the most candid behind-the-scenes shots of the film that exist, including one picture of um, Olive O'Neill and the farmer taken by Kubrick, who famously was a photographer Bye. before. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And then obviously there's the circumstances of how the film left Ireland. Because Kubrick had wanted to make a film... Kubrick... Um, one of the things that distinguishes Kubrick is his long-standing relationship with Warner Brothers and the creative freedom that he enjoyed as a result of that. And one of the ways that he did that is similar to what, say, Eastwood does and what Nolan does, which is they make films that are very cheap and very frugal for what's put on screen, uh, to the point where Nolan has delivered all of his prints ahead of schedule and under budget. I've heard um, which means that the studio literally cannot come in and say, we have some thoughts on this. He's like, no, take your money mm. and the free time I've given you and release this movie that will make you millions. Mm. Um, and Kubrick has something similar. And the thing with this was he originally wanted to shoot all of Barry Lyndon in a 90-minute radius of his own house in England, um, <laughs> because that would save him billing the studio for lodging costs. Um, he found he couldn't do that, so he went to Ireland, which was next door, and then filmed a lot of the movie there, and a lot of the movie there. Like yeah. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about that, but he famously wrapped up and left Ireland very quickly towards the end of the shoot because he was threatened by the IRA. Was he, though? Yeah, well... I heard two things. I heard he was threatened, and then I also heard it was his own paranoia with being. You would be paranoid after the Clockwork Orange fallout, though. Yeah, but I think you'd also be paranoid as sort of like a. In the middle of the troubles as well. Like He was getting a lot of death threats after Clockwork Orange. Yeah. I mean, he pulled his own film. Yeah, which is is a lot for a director to do. And, like, I mean, the the paranoia that he had around letting the press loose on on this is Mm. arguably a direct response to that. But maybe the fact that he wasn't letting the press around means that's why, if you read about it now, there's still kind of a bit of ambiguity around that threat. You know, was he rang and warned by the British authorities? That's what I read in some places. But then other people say a hairdresser on the set received a phone call threatening him. Well, I mean, the, the details of it are apparently he just, he pulled a Lynn Ramsey or um, a Brian Singer and literally just didn't show up to set just one day. Off. Just No, no, not didn't walk <laughs> off. Everybody, didn't show up. Everybody showed up and they hung around for four hours and like, yeah. uh, isn't isn't Kubrick meant to be the one who's like obsessive about making films? Mm. And then discovered that actually he packed up and went overnight back to the UK. So there is, yeah, there is an element of, of ambiguity about why that was. But I, says, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why we don't talk about it as a great Irish film. Maybe. I also think it's interesting because, I mean, what you were saying there, Clean, about he sort of made this film that even, and he made Clockwork Orange, and that still is a controversial film. You know, yeah. it's still sort of one that... Well, they didn't get a theatrical release over here, I think, until no, after yeah. he died. Yeah, like long after. But I almost sort of think, and we'll probably get into this about this film, but this film is much more... Much less controversial, shall we yeah. say. It's much more sort of. It's not only sort of based on a um, sort of more historical novel, one that had been around for a long time, not the sort of new crazy one that the Clockwork Orange should be based on. But do you think that was a reaction to this that he kind of thought, oh, I want to do something a little bit more that isn't going to, for instance, need to be pulled from cinemas, that people aren't going to have these like crazy reactions to in the same way? And that's kind of interesting because. One of the things about Barry Lyndon is it's a it's a movie that at once doesn't really fit with the movies that Kubrick had done to this point where like if you look at the the previous th- 
three films that he'd done. So Doctor Strange Love, 2001 Space Odyssey, and A Clockwork Orange. They're all sort of like high concept sort of like, yeah. you know. Fantastical. Yeah, yeah, fantastical sort of out there films. Whereas Barry Lyndon is a period piece <clears throat> set in the 18th century, written during the 19th century. Yeah. Um, and it is, and famously, it's a result of he wanted to do a, a Napoleon Yes. The story of Napoleon. With Jack Nicholson, apparently, yeah. Which would have been amazing. Um, and I think Michael Cement, the, the French uh, film critic, um, and I apologise, I'm probably mangling his name. It's probably not Cement. Simon or something, C- yeah. <laughs> but he, uh, he's argued that you can say that Barry Lyndon is in some ways Kubrick playing with the idea of Kubrick doing uh, you know, a Napoleon film. And that's a story of a man from a small island who goes to Europe, fights in a bunch of wars, climbs the top of you know yeah. the ascendancy, and ends up exiled back to that island at the very end of the story. Yeah, uh, that's interesting actually yeah. but he famously he settled on Barry Lyndon because he wanted to do Vanity Fair which is Thackeray's obviously yes. Thackeray's big novel yeah. um, and he found that he couldn't do that and this is hilarious within the time constraints of cinema so he felt that adapting Vanity Fair wow. for the screen would not be possible based on the fact that nobody would watch the movie that would be as long D- as it would need to really be. That's really interesting. <laughs> Particularly because that implies that he thinks Barry Lyndon is within the time constraints of cinema. None, yeah. none of these kinds of novels are within the time constraints of cinema. Like, even, even kind of, um, like, the... It it reminded me of um, was it Hen- Henry Fielding's Tom Jones and even like uh, the uh, Voltaire's Candide like all of the kind of moving around and the 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 the, the sheer like am- amount of like these are not simple <laughs> yeah. stories there, yeah. there's so much kind picaresque of picaresque sort of yeah, stuff. yeah. It's, a, it's a bunch of random stuff that happens but think now how many famous showrunners or filmmakers would rather make a miniseries than a movie. Like, yeah. how ahead of his time was that? You know? Kubrick actually cited that when he was asked about uh, Barry Lyndon, when he was talking about Vanity Fair. Yeah. Like, and it's a really great, there's a really great interview, we'll put it in the show notes or whatever, but um, where he literally says, we've reached a point where television can, over the course of a series of nights, tell a story that is longer and more expansive and more inclusive than film. And Vanity Fair would be something that I would have considered adapting for television. Wow. And you're like... You can almost imagine Stanley Kubrick doing like a HBO adaptation of Vanity yeah. Fair if he were still alive. But considering that, like, so we, we watched on. How big is your television, Alex? Pretty big. It's a big television. It's a big yeah. television, okay. Well, I watched this in the Lighthouse Cinema in Smithfield on yeah. some sort of Blu ray restoration. Okay. And just the whole. You know, just being there in the cinema watching it, like the. We talked about kind of the painterly kind of um, skill of the shots, you know? Yeah. So I think that's. Like with the time constraints of cinema, I mean, some of that might be lost. Or did you feel that when we watched it on the screen that the uh, the framing you could appreciate the framing, but you, did you guys get lost in like the beauty of the shots as much as you would in the cinema as you did? I know what, what you mean. Here? Yeah, and I saw this in the cinema once, and I was that. I think it's funny. I've seen this film yeah. a few different times, but the mm-hmm. time I've most liked it, shall we say, is when I went to go see it in the cinema on yeah. a Sunday morning and like just soaked it exactly, in let yeah. it wash over you yeah because um, I mean I, I saw it a couple of times as well I saw it when I was working through the, the Kubrick films as you point out as all young cinephiles do and it was kind of <laughs> like ah, that's grand but I want to get to The Shining yeah uh, whereas when I, I went to see it at ADIF for the 40th anniversary where they had uh, Ryan O'Neill over and that was a completely different experience it's yeah. probably the best experience I've had watching yeah. it because it just on a big screen it, it does it soaks mm-hmm. you in it you absorb it and it absorbs you yeah it's no, I would definitely agree with that, and I think it, it as I sort of say, the first time I watched this, um, and I'd be interested in, in what everyone thought the first time they watched it because I didn't get it. You know, I didn't, I didn't get it the first time. I, I wasn't laughing at the jokes in the same way. I, I didn't 
sort of it didn't click for me and I always thought it was just this long weird film that as you sort of say in between all these other like much more exciting much more sort of bombastic films and it was only later I think it was probably that cinema viewing again and it almost takes a room of other people to laugh at at there's so much comedy in the early part of it and I think if you're not just clued into that or maybe I just didn't get it in the same way when I was younger and then everyone's laughing and suddenly you're kind of like no this is really funny actually this is a really funny well-made film what did you guys think then about... Lena, this was your first time seeing it for this, wasn't it? I loved it. I really, <laughs> really liked it. And the I did find the length a little daunting in theory. But uh, the first actor half in particular, I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and I found it really, really funny. Sometimes I was wondering, was it intended to be funny? Mm. Uh, Ryan O'Neill's kind of doleful, yeah. sorrowful... Irish accent. Um, look, no, we'll it looks. Like the way he always just looked so... Um, he, he, he played he actually, yeah. Not, he did so hurt very well, sort of like yes. young man hurt very he, well. In the early he, he had some incredible acting in uh, terms of nose crying. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, it's a difficult thing. It's more difficult than, than the one-eyed tear. Is a single tear falling out of your nostril. <laughs> that is, it's a they special just don't, talent. They that don't can, teach that in acting no, school no. anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. He did also rely on a lot where he'd just get to the point where he was about to like fully break down and then he'd hide his face with his hand I thought yeah. it was a, a good choice by Kubrick yeah. thing, like, so just when you're getting really into the performance <laughs> when you're I about to hide your face completely. when you're about to act yeah. in inverted commas yeah. Yeah. well you know that um, like O'Neill famously was part of the getting finances for this because this cost 11 million dollars at the time Wow. budgeted for 8 uh, went over budget obviously because of the whole moving production mm. um, randomly but um, it cost 11 and Warner Brothers were apparently quite happy with that because they were like, look, we'd rather pay 11 million for a Kubrick film than 8 million for something we can't release. Mm-hmm. But um, O'Neill was part of the deal there because, and this is something I think we mentioned earlier when describing O'Neill in a Kubrick film, he was the hi- second highest grossing actor of 1972 behind Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I would love to see Barry Lyndon starring Clint Eastwood, oh, but that's God. a different conversation. But um, he is one of the few times that Kubrick actually cast a recognisable leading man outside of, say, obviously Spartacus early on with, with Douglas, The like, Shining, and yeah. you know, and Eyes Wide Shut. It's almost like, like I get the leading man thing, but it's almost... I, there, are, there were leading men in the 70s, definitely, that would have been more almost sort of appropriate in a Kubrick yeah. film. You know, he's not like a Kubrick-style kind of leading man. It well, he's, feels not, like... he's not a character actor. He's, yeah. a, he's, a, he's a, you know, he's... Was Robert Redford say... was the first I, choice. I, I, I quite liked him um, as a as a choice uh, for... for, for the, because there, there were... I, for, for, for me, it was kind of, like, believable as, as somebody who was kind of getting by on his looks and his yeah <laughs> and there were definitely parts of that that like helped with the performance yeah there there's was like just a blank, blankness to him I find he's like a, a cipher all these kind of interesting things happen around him but he doesn't seem to cause anything you know and that's, yeah. a, that's I mean I would argue like um, Kubrick's work in Eyes Wide Shut which mm-hmm. I think is, is a spiritual successor to Barry Lyndon yeah there? Both the are very much, anyway yeah. As well, yeah. but they're also both about these men who are like really handsome and who have everything that they could want and have no idea what to do with it. Yeah, so kind of set it's a real burden. Yeah, and, and it, is, it is very tough. Um, I can empathise. But yeah, when you look inside Tom Cruise's and, and Ryan O'Neill's cold, dead eyes, um, <laughs> you have this sort of like... But Cuber creates this vacuum by casting those two actors in the role. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it works here in that sense, in that Lyndon is almost a void at the centre of the film, in that you have all these richer character actors around him. Like you were mm. pointing out like Stephen Burkhoff and yeah. Patrick... Uh, 
Patrick McGowan as, yeah. Yeah, as well. And you have all these sort of characters, character actors who just embody these like small yes, roles and yeah. flesh them out. Even like uh, Leon Vitale as, as Bullington as well. Yeah. But like Ryan O'Neill is the center of the film, but he's kind of hollow. He's kind of hollow. Yeah. yeah. And it, it works very well, I think. I was trying to think of like an equivalent and it would be like, say, David Fincher tomorrow announces he's making a Napoleon biopic and says, and we're casting Channing Tatum. And it wouldn't be a little like. Oh, I think that's a little bit. What I, don't know. I, I, I would argue that Channing Tatum is probably better than Ryan O'Neill. Oh, <laughs> I, I oh, that was uncalled I, I sure. didn't think that was the the, the sense in which the comparison was unfavorable. <laughs> I, I, I love Channing Tatum. I, I, I like Channing, Channing Tatum, Tatum too. too. I just yeah, I don't <laughs> think it's. I don't Same think for the Channing Tatum podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just didn't. You know, it's it's. I suppose it's a surprising choice in a way. But then, as you guys said. He does work to an extent. He's. I do think of the whole film, his performance at times is the weakest part. Really? By far. Yeah, yes. I do. Yeah. I, I, I also think there are parts in the film that are enlivened and really made so funny because of him. Yes. But I don't know how much of that is his performance and how much of it is him looking like a sort of... Yeah, Cuba being, I can use this. Yes. Um, this guy's like a statue that I can put there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. But, but, but he does have a, quite an Irish face. Would you, would you think so? No. Uh, no, 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 I do like that as the film goes on and as he starts wearing makeup, he actually looks younger. So like 15-year-old Barry, Redmond Barry, looks like he's about like 60-year-old Ryan O'Neill. And then, you know, they sort of age together as they go. It's like Benjamin Button, yeah. He's (laughs) right in the middle of the film, he's playing the appropriate age. Well, it is appropriate that they age in... um, in this movie, in some in some <laughs> way, because I mean, it is you, a long movie. I was going to say, did you feel like you were watching no, it? No, it, it didn't feel like it was fifteen hours long. <laughs> it, 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 it actually flew by. Considering. How many yeah. times have you guys seen this movie? I'd say that would have been my fourth time watching. Mm-hmm. It. I believe this was my second. Probably fourth, I think. And I think, like like a lot, um, uh, like Alex and like Darren, I think it, it was kind of coming to a little bit later. Mm. Um, it being one that I was kind of hold, hold, holding off on seeing as a kind of a completionist, I suppose. <laughs> holding, not, holding off or pushing off? Not, not, not that I've seen every Kubrick movie, but it, 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 the, the, out, out of the ones I knew, I knew that there was this Barry Lyndon movie that I wanted to see because it was Kubrick and because I um, so much enjoyed uh, Clockwork Orange and uh, Full Metal Jacket, um, The Shining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is in the middle of the run as well. Like it's it's yeah. like smack bang in the middle. The height. What about you, Sean? I remember watching it once with you in college when we were roommates, and I don't think I think of I've us... seen I've seen this movie maybe five times. Okay, probably the most. And I I never remember anything that happens in it. You know, <laughs> I just get I just the other the imagery and the set design it and the, it, yeah, it just takes me over. And but I that's just a good thing, I go into a trance, you know, yeah. and I come out of it. And it's like when I was preparing for this, I was thinking I don't have to watch this because I've seen it, you know, five or six times. And then I was thinking. I have no idea what happens. In it. <laughs> you know? That's actually a really good point. Because I, I, a lot of the commentary that I've read on it amounts to, this is a very beautiful film from which I can recall, you know, snapshots, pictures, yeah, yeah. and lines occasionally. Mm-hmm. But I can't remember any scenes, you know, more than a week after I've watched it. I can't actually remember the detail of anything that happens. I think partly, and I think that might be because, and you sort of mentioned it already, this like painterly quality that I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll get into about the technical things. 
because he frames so much of the the picture in this or the, the film in this very static way even crowd shots and even things where we sort of see the beautiful Paris court gardens there are people sort of so perfectly placed so that their shadows cast this light that they don't actually look like people they kind of it looks like a painting and I think it stands in contrast then to the scenes in the film where it's actually quite fast and violent, like the, some of the duel scenes, some the of the boxing fighting scene, scenes, the, the boxing, boxing scene, yeah. and the scene towards the end the where he's fighting. The light kept changing in the boxing scene. Did you notice yeah, that? Sometimes it would yeah. look really sunny and sometimes it would look like there was a storm coming. Yeah, and I know. I, well, it the feels hour... like they're kind of, and I think that's why, Sean, your point, that it sort of lulls you into this because it feels like you're watching paintings for quite a lot of it yeah. rather than, than you know action and things like well, that. Well, I mean, famously, Kubrick, when he was doing this, what he did was he bought a whole host of like classic art books, tore pages out of them and built himself a little scrapbook that he would consult on set. And like uh, Ryan O'Neill's talked about how like apparently Kubrick, you know, the, the stories about Kubrick as a perfectionist, as an obsessive and stuff mm. like that, the hardest shot for Kubrick to do would be the first shot in the morning, and that would sometimes take up to four hours for Kubrick to figure out what he wanted. <laughs> but one of the things that Kubrick would do when he got really stuck was he would go to his little scrapbook, he'd randomly pick a painting, or he'd pick a painting that sort of jumped out to him, and he'd arrange the actors in the style of that painting, right. and then he would actually just begin rolling. Yeah. Um, and indeed, like you mentioned, okay, well, we'll probably talk a little bit more about the technical stuff later on, but even stuff like the slow moving of figures yeah. is a technical choice as well because of the lighting conditions yeah he didn't want to underexpose the film but it means they don't look human in a way yeah you know and it looks like sometimes they come across as waxworks rather than pick people in some yeah, yeah i guess it's in the age of um uh, makeup and powdered wigs mm. i was thinking kind of watching it because i had kind of forgotten i was thinking of course of course, Ryan O'Neill will, will not require a powdered wig. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's already got an incredible kind of barrister's sort of... Hairstyle. <laughs> yeah. The, um, but yeah, even, even, even he had to... to um, because presumably his, um, in, in, in the story, his syphilis has, 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 has struck at this point. I, I, I was... This is the character syphilis. Yes, I, I do, well, I, I, I'm, I'm, the guy with the, the, guy with the eye patch. Apparently, they, it became a fashion because of the um, aristocracy who tended to suffer from syphilis would start losing their hair, so started wearing wearing wigs. I, oh, I think I heard this recently. I, I'm balding at the moment, but that's good. <laughs> just just to be clear. But, I mean, famously, Kubrick insisted that uh, Marissa Berrison, the model um, who had never really acted before, that she stay out of direct sunlight for three months before filming um, so that she would look properly pale. Yeah, pallid. Um, and like yeah. Could you get away with that now, I wonder? I'm properly depressed. Well. <laughs> Locked in. <laughs> You're going to be here, married to Ryan O'Neill. And, and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Although apparently, to be fair, Kubrick uh, was awful to his actors, um, but was not was apparently quite kind to people who weren't actors. Apparently, Berenson found him very pleasant to work with. Because, because he just thought, oh, you're not an actor. You're yeah, like a painting I, I can I'm, place in the film. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to beat Leon Vitale like yeah. I do Ryan O'Neill. Like, there's a really great... Uh, a, the film festival this year there was the documentary film worker about, yep. about Liam Vitale and he was in later. town wasn't he to actually present I, it I, I don't believe I oh, didn't no, see him anyway but I heard even might that there was a rumour or something maybe he wasn't there in the end but um, O'Neill talks about how like when they were shooting the scene where he attacks uh, Bullington um, how Kubrick would ask him to attack him harder 
And like O'Neill in this interview recorded 40 years after filming the scene is practically crying saying, I know I hurt him. And you're like, yeah, this is a little uncomfortable. Gets even more uncomfortable because I don't know if you know Cleanup and Sean as well. Leon Vitale, who plays Bullingdon, then kind of became Kubrick's personal assistant for like the next 20 years and casting director. And never really acted in the same way again. Why? Yeah, He just got him. And like they kind of like... Oh, okay. Gel together. He wanted. He always wanted to work with Kubrick. Um, he was an actor. He'd famously he'd worked on Frankenstein, which was shot in Ireland. So you guys may be covering it at some point as well. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that he did while working on Frankenstein was he worked behind the scenes because he wanted to work with Kubrick. And he said basically after they worked together, Kubrick was impressed with him on this. And he said basically, if you want me for anything, um, mm. I will happily sign up and do it. And he was basically Kubrick said, gave him a bunch of books. He read a bunch. He read those books about ending, about uh, behind the scenes production. He was brought in basically as a factotum. So he did stuff like, for example, in The Shining. He was in charge of handling. Um, is it uh, Danny Lloyd or no? Yeah, the little the, 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 the yeah. kid um, on Full Metal Jacket. Um, if you read Matthew Modine's diaries, um, he goes into talking about how he was basically Kubrick's inside man. There, he would mm. be the guy who coached Orly Army on how to act. Mm. And who would basically spy on the actors in order to to kind of keep Kubrick in the loop. Um, And even, like, in the long lull between Kubrick films, he would do stuff like set up a complex video mechanism inside Kubrick's house so Kubrick could keep track of a sick cat from any room using a video monitor. So It sounds actually like in this film where, you know, um, Barry Lyndon becomes the sort of, like, factotum of the old guy with syphilis yeah. for like years and then just kind of like gets enveloped into his life but and then eventually just, just because he's Irish and more experienced at being a chancellor like that's, yeah. that's all he needs yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah so yeah this was one of the last times Vitaly acted actually mm-hmm. he play does pop up as Bullington apparently he was uh, quite impressed Kubrick I thought he was good in this as well I thought like he did the like when you sort of see him in the first scene, it literally cuts from him sort of being little Lord Farntonoy's little boy, and then immediately to like this man holding his mum's hand and in and a your vaguely little, like, creepy fashion. It's, yeah. it's Brian who's more of the kind of little Lord. Farntonoy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Even in death, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> more of a Damien, I think. Yeah. But I actually thought he was great from going from the sort of, you know, child, really, and then all the way towards the end where he's, you know, coming into his own a little bit more and turning down. A little bit. Yeah. Just yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Did he act so much after this? Or no, no, he pretty, he pretty much gave himself over completely. Oh, really? Like, um, he manages the Kubrick yeah, he still does. stuff now. Like, he, he's in charge of, like, you know, making sure Those that boxes. all the... The Blu-rays and stuff yeah. are, you know, accurate and... And, and the aspect was, ratio. He was yeah. involved in an aspect ratio argument over, I think, this film. Okay. Uh, which we probably won't get drawn into, but... Um, <laughs> but the, the aspect ratio being something like 1.78 instead of 1.77. Oh, I see. And this will not stand. I'm glad that they landed on whatever it was in this one. But, yeah... So he, he is in charge of that and he does all the stuff. He does the frame-by-frame frame splicing and he does mm. the preparing of prints for international festivals. And he's still sort of devoted himself, even after Kubrick's death, to yeah. the maintenance of his legacy. So he still, he, gave, he didn't get invited to the opening of the Kubrick exhibition in Los Angeles by the Academy. But the members of the Academy who actually understood Kubrick would famously ask him to give them tours. So he would give them tours around this exhibit to which he had not been invited, which oh, is... Wow, strange really? they didn't invite him then. It is, yeah. Well, That's weird, yeah. One imagines the people who didn't invite him weren't the ones asking for tours, though. Mm. Um, but there are stories like people like Edgar Wright or whatever, yeah. or uh, Tarantino, or, or people who sort of like have that interest in film mm. history specifically, or that period of film history where like this is the guy to guide us through the Kubrick sort of archive almost. Yeah. 
He never got his peerage. All of these like, favors were yeah, yeah. for nothing. Yeah. yeah. But no, so guys, what is uh, Barry Lyndon about for you? If you were to sum up Barry Lyndon, what is? I think it's the story of a chancer. I think it's it's and it's an Irish story in a way because I do think it's that Irish chancer style. It's someone who is a little bit rash when they're young, but then gradually works out how they can use their own whatever the hand they've been dealt to their own advantage. But then, and there's a great line in the film where it sort of says something like the same skills that allowed Barry to accumulate a fortune eventually meant that his sort of downfall was caused by the exact same sort of rash. So I think it's that. It's someone who's quite rash and quite, you know, in some ways brilliant, but then inevitably that kind of character does also lead to like misfortune. Well, there's a really great line from Thackeray who wrote the novel describing Ireland as a nation of liars. <laughs> Can you sort of see that shining through in Barry yeah. Lyndon? Not yeah. just, <laughs> every Irish character is devious. Yeah. There's no... <laughs> like sort of like devious in a sort of like a fair play to them kind of way, not like sort of evil, I thought. Yeah, not yeah. Well, more like in a surviving under the heel of various yeah. empires sort not of Not just liars, though. <laughs> like, the... like fighters and fornicators. Yeah. And gamblers. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, famously, the novel is narrated. <laughs> the novel, that essential part, the novel is narrated by Barry Lyndon himself, as opposed to an omniscient, omniscient narrator. But, oh, um, I, th- I thought, because I, I, I was thinking when, when the narrator was going, he was, like, I was expecting him, like, well, in my head, he, he was like, um, um, and Barry at this time was afforded all of the uh, things to which a gentleman uh, had become accustomed, such as fine clothes, a classically trained narrator. <laughs> is, uh, the narrator's uh, very funny. Yeah. He's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, the, the um, it, it really kind of, it really added, because narration in movies can be very, kind of, can kind of take you out of it. Yeah. This, 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 this was a fantastic kind of well, I stroke. Think, I think, though, the narrator in this is like, and this is the thing Kubrick, as, as a formalist, as a director, we talk about him being painterly in compositions and all that sort of stuff. Kubrick is consciously taking you out of the film, though, I would argue. Like, yeah. the narrator exists to put a gap between you and the film. He provides exposition, he fills in details, he provides even, like, why sarcastic commentary. Literally, the, of... first, literally the first thing he does is to say, Barry's father was a promising lawyer until he got shot. No, Bang! No. Um, and it's like, and there's a lot of those really cynical, mean asides. The the narrator has definite ideas about sexual morality. <laughs> it's like his mother spared herself the ignominy of, of, oh, yeah. of companionship <laughs> um, by, by opting yeah. to be a widow for the rest of her life. Kind of sets up the film, though, because she Absolutely. also says she's going to devote herself fully to her son, and you think, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to be an absolute monster. <laughs> yeah. and, and somehow she's, you know, that's, that's only the second worst son in the movie, yeah. as it turns out. <laughs> It's like later in the movie we find out that um, all uh, there, there, there's there, there's quite 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 a bit of slut shaming in this movie because it's like well in the five years um, she's she's oh, had yeah. many a suitor and and then it's later on where it's like in in times of war. Um, yes, the town was conquered yeah. and they'd siege to many. Yeah, yeah, and then late, late, later on you have. The, well, I mean, you um, also have the the foppish, sort of vaguely homophobic British army officers, sort of the cliche of the two guys in the pool together. Yes, yeah, well, you, so you, you have you have the erstwhile uh, Lord Lyndon 
uh, saying, "Oh, you haven't been the first to to um, to to wish me dead or, or to, to 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 carry on with my uh, lady lady." Um, Linden. 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 <laughs> the name of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there there is a bit of that in there. But I mean I I don't know. And like I think the narration is very clever and very canny in the way that it like in the novel it's from Barry's perspective, but the original draft included editor's notes and in inverted commas okay. that would point out when Barry was flagrantly lying. So he would okay. talk about how he amassed his fortune and be like, actually, no, he squandered all of it. <laughs> um and so on and so forth. Or you know, it was a turn of bad luck and no, it was actually his fault. Mm. But the film does an excellent job of like juxtaposing what you're hearing and what you're seeing. If you have the visuals with the narration, yeah. you don't need to have that kind of help. Mm. You don't yeah. need to be told he's lying. I, yeah. to to be clear, I, 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 I don't know if I had really any problem with the with the way that it because there seems something kind of wry about it as in the way the way the way it was per, per, portraying women as it as if as if there was a certain kind of like an irony about the kind of judgment that it was um well, I mean, it, it is. Yeah. I thought that commentary on the Dutch woman was kind of more. This is the reality of war. You know, it was judgmental yeah, yeah. but humorous, as in like this exactly. isn't this isn't a true pure love it, affair here. That's exactly, happening. it seemed to be kind of lampooning the the kind of romance of it. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, it, it also lampoon, lampoons uh, patriotism and stuff like that as well. Yeah. So I'd be like like meat for gunpowder and stuff mm, like that, yeah. and this sort of like signing up for the king's shilling and all this. Yeah. Like it is there is a definite level of irony and self awareness yeah. there. There's there's there's, there's a, a good deal of uh, this, um, healthy cynicism in this movie. <laughs> yeah. As one might expect from a Kubrick film, to be yeah. honest. But the narrator does sort of defend Barry sometimes. Did you notice when he first goes into battle against the French, and that later becomes his sort of tall tale that he boasts about to his son. Mm. But when he first goes in, the narrator says something like, now this battle wasn't recorded in any history books or anywhere of note, but it, w- it was important uh, for the guys there at the time. Yeah. It, they, they were very brave and it almost sounds kind of defensive. Mm, and then, you yeah. know, the battle's a bit of a shambles and, you know. <laughs> Over a crossroads, the slow, <laughs> the slow marching yeah. to slaughter and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I would argue that Barry Lyndon is in, in many ways like an archetypal Kubrick and narrative in that it's a story about how people try to impose order in a universe that quite frankly doesn't care. Yeah. Um, it's got that sort of like cold distance of people trying to, and it, it, it's in many ways, like the class structure to which Barry sort of strives through mm. the sort of, and it's a very, it's a criticism of like, it's not, and Gary Andrew's right when he says it's like a criticism of romanticism. Like the, the novel was written during the 19th century, about the 18th century. And was a sort of, in some ways critical of the nostalgia that people felt for it then. And this is also because you have this mm. focus on like, the rules that govern yeah. a society and the rules that govern behavior and interactions and like what's expected of a person yeah. uh, by these structures and how they're designed in many ways to like manipulate and exploit people like Barry to put him in a situation where his only option is to join up to fight for you know a foreign army on yeah. foreign soil and his family betray him by setting him up to at the start of the film thinking that you know he's going to he's trying he thinks he's involved in this sort of like romantic ideal and fighting for his woman when really everyone else is on this <laughs> yeah. like plan to get rid of barry get and him send him off to yeah. dublin and yeah because yeah. like, even when he's gallivanting through the wide open spaces of ireland on mm. horseback looking like something from a wuthering heights adaptation everybody else in the film is laughing at him behind his back yeah. pretty much yeah and there's a lot of that throughout there as well like there's a real sense that like People are happy to exploit Barry and to take advantage of him and to use him, but there's no real possibility of like him 
advancing in terms of class. Yeah. I mean, his mother even says as much. Like, even after he's married in, there's yeah. no way that he will be accepted by these people. Yeah. I feel like if he had started in in the um, in the cottage and had been told um, off to Dublin with you, with your with your with your twenty guineas, and he said, oh, "No, no, I'd, I'd, I'd rather go to hell in Dublin." What about an annuity of five hundred guineas a year? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll take your hand off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I get to settle in the same college. You know? yeah. It works out perfectly. I, f- I, f- I feel like um, because the, there, there is a kind of a veneer of, of this being a, a, a sort of a morality tale. But for me, anyway, it's actually more a kind of like a, it, it feels, I don't know if I'm right, but it feels like a kind of an, an enlightenment kind of um, look at at. at the questioning about about whether there is this kind of like divine kind of justice or whether it's kind of more like the the fates kind of spinning a wheel yeah well i mean well that that is something that kubrick's very interested i mean you point to the enlightenment sort of aesthetic of it it should be this is kubrick's big period piece film but like in terms of like a clockwork orange also has trappings of 18th century design in it if you look at 2001 space odyssey ends up in like an 18th century grand bedroom that just so happens to be the end of time like kubrick is very interested in this idea of like the 18th century as a place of reason and logic and, and basically using that to question whether or not it exists like whether or not our understanding of the world or our attempt to impose order or reason mm. on the world makes any sense at all are, 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 and, and one way in which people kind of um, I suppose at the time had, had, had tried to um, apply order to the world is, 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 is through a deity through God oh, yeah. and they, they, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was at a time when, when, um, when this was being questioned because of the, the, the logical problems that intellectuals had which which like the the problem the of evil yeah. so why would a god allow any of the things that happen in this movie to take place <laughs> and, um, and like but the thing about barry Lyndon is though it does have a god it has several gods it most obviously has the god of the narrator who is talking to the audience member it most obviously has the god of stanley kubrick and, and thackeray who are <laughs> writing right no no i'm not you would thank you for saying that. no no but i mean seriously like kubrick we talked about like kubrick's meticulous framing his use of say zoom in the film like yeah. his attempt attention to detail and the way in which his actors uh, stand sort of stayed in the frame for you to absorb them like one of the the big most you know most recurring shots in the film is to focus on people and then pull back out with a slow zoom i think yeah. there are 36 zooms in the film yeah. all of which serve to make those characters seem small and unimportant yeah. when compared to the world around them yeah like, I think that the film is, is consciously... The film is suggesting, like, even if there is a god, he's probably the kind of person who will send you to Dublin or to hell. Um, put you as one soldier in 2000 who just have to walk forward and get shot slowly. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, just on that point, um, spoilers alert, um, but we could talk about the ending uh, with the duel. Can we talk deeply about that? Or okay. Sure, yeah. yeah. Spoilers all. <laughs> there we yeah, go. We, <laughs> and we're clear. I have, to, I have to mention that this is the I, I came late to our viewing of it. So I watched the last half hour, so I want to talk in detail about this. It's it's really the last half hour. Yeah. Right. But before you talk in detail about yeah. this, do you know how much space that duel took up in the script? I would say probably two pages or three pages. I'd say more than that. I'm going to say that seems like a very like every element of that to me seemed like it could be a paragraph. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go the other way and say like 25 pages. A single line. What? <laughs> yeah, apparently the this the they just have a duel. Yeah, it's it's oh um yeah Lord Bullington and Barry it duel like... full stop, 
In the um, script. That's in the script. Uh, what about in Takare? <laughs> what? Does not say about the pistol. No. All, all that stuff was like largely Kubrick sort of improvising really? around it. Yeah. That's incredible. But, if you, you but that explains why the movie is three hours and 23 minutes long. Because that scene is like... Six feels, minutes. Yeah. Like we, we've talked before about how maybe one of the things Kubrick's trying to do in this is like show the absurdity of like the rituals that are going yeah. on. You know, So the absurdity of this... Uh, this jewel ritual, you know? But just on the point you were making about gods and religion, like, when I was looking at the... Um, it's like a barn where it's taking place, and it's very uh, neoclassical in design, but it's actually... A, it's a cross where it's yeah. actually happening. Yeah. Oh, know? and there are white doves as well. Yeah, yeah. white doves walking yeah. around, and not in the John Woo sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and just like, the, what what does Barry do? Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. But he, he sacrifices himself to save another person, you know? Save his son. To save yeah. his son. And that's, you know? that's arguably the most decent thing that Barry does over the course of the film. Like, the I was film thinking is... about that, and I think in previous... <laughs> Viewings, I've always seen that as like a decent act to show he's not all bad. But in that one, I'm thinking, but he's kind of suicidal. He wants to die. And he wants to die. And And he can't even do that right. Yeah. And I kind of think, is that not just him thinking, here's a chance to go out and be a story and be like, oh, maybe we had that guy wrong. That's a little unfair to think it's all vanity, I think, because he just falls through life. Even though he schemes to make money, he's just like the first half of the movie, he's just drifting and things are happening to him. Rather than caused by him. Like one of the things that I actually really like about Barry Lyndon is the fact that the protagonist is clever. But he's nowhere near as clever as he needs to be to get ahead. Like you have the wonderful scene where he goes to Prussia. And he thinks he's the smartest man alive because he's got papers as a spy. And he makes up this story about how his uncle is the ambassador to Berlin. And he basically, you see him get literally caught in a lie, arrested, and then sort of sent to, like, indentured servitude, basically, in the army. Um, And, like, there's a sense that Barry is never as smart as... He's smart enough to get far, Mm. but he's never smart enough to, like, control his own narrative. I think that's why he's so likable in the first half of the movie, though, is because he just keeps just chancing his arm and he's not even that intelligent. And he's so naively disappointed when his terrible <laughs> haphazard schemes don't go his way. And Ambassador O'Grady will hear about this. <laughs> I f- like the, 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 the people who teach him, I suppose, how, how, to, um, how to be duplicitous um, admire his, his kind of nascent attempts. And it, like even even um, was it Captain Feeney yes. at the beginning there is kind of a, a sort of apparent admiration for yeah, this person. He lets that him keep his boots. That he's robbing. Yeah, you can keep those boots. <laughs> Seeing as that's the that's the saddest story I've heard in weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and then that Captain Horgan just takes a liking to him, even Sorry. though you know he's lecturing Barry that you're you're kind of you're preventing your family from having all this money if Nora marries this guy. Mm. Like stop being so self. And he lays it all out for him and you think he's going to learn his lesson and he just says, no, I'm I'm still going to duel him. That's what I have to do. And he just kind of laughs and says, ah, good luck to you, you know. (laughs) The 1970s Simon Delaney, basically. Um, I've got to admire your pig-headedness. Yeah. (laughs) No matter what, you'll have a Refusal to... to... You'll have a second in dueling, even though dueling is terrible. I think Um, Kubrick was... Was, uh, was quite hurt by the spate of duelings <laughs> that resulted as a direct yeah, result of yeah. the release of this film. <laughs> yeah, um, the tabloids picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so he was to blame for a lot more resurgence <laughs> in dueling after yeah. the film. Well, I mean, like uh, we talk about how random Barry's sort of like trip through life is. The film is very deliberately structured to be symmetrical. Obviously, it has two parts: the rise and the fall and stuff. Mm. But it even has like clever juxtapositions. Like, for example, uh, when 1970 Simon Delaney dies and he tells Barry that you know we'll never see each other again. You have that juxtaposed with later when his son dies and says we promise we'll see each other together again yeah. in heaven but even like the use of jewels to yes. break up the film as well to provide a sort of a sense of structure the film is very clearly the hand of a, like a conscious creator even oh, if yeah. Barry can't
can't make sense of it as he tries to navigate it, which I find interesting. The two fights, which are sort of shot in a very almost like handheld, much more frenzied way than the rest of the film. And he has a fight at the start where someone kind of, a soldier with that he's sort of trading with has a sort of like has a go at him and then somebody else because clearly everyone kind of hates that guy as a bully yeah. someone sort of encourages Barry and says here's some things to slag him off and they get into a fight and Barry then at the end of it is lifted up on the shoulders of all his people and carried away and then the next time we see Barry having a fight it's when he's beating up a child at the end of the, towards the end of the film and it's the exact opposite everyone's like horrified trying by to what pull he's him doing. away yeah. yeah I mean it's it's even interesting that like the violence the boxing match that you talk about like a British soldier comes up and says oh oh you can't fight in here yeah Arrange a boxing square. We must form a square. Yeah, form yeah. a square. So there are like places in this world where violence is acceptable. The, 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 the hilarious line is after, you know, we'll just say a pistol goes off in a duel by accident, by accident and he immediately says, I, I need another gun. This has gone off. And they're like, no, no. The rules say that you have to now just stand there and be shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a weird kind of an ambivalence, it seems like, in this kind of age in which the movie is set to... to to violence and the, the, that that a, a gentleman could could have um, there was there was there was a code that was quite separate from the actual law of the matter. Yeah. That they, they, in it was was it um, before the civil war? There was like a, a senator cudgeled like an, an, an another um, senator practically to death, and and it, it would have been seen as like a normal thing for. I know that's not the, the, the same time, but we all kind of like think about it, I suppose, as as this strange sort of... Well, I mean, like, I, I have been overseas to countries where it's like the Speaker of the House in the National Parliament has been attacked by a member of the opposite party on the floor of the mm-hmm. Parliament and be like, yeah, that's just something that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know... It's most unparliamentary. <laughs> we only do... Sh- well, the Americans find British Parliament crazy with all the shouting and hollering, for example. Our, our, our own Parliament. Um, Where there's three guys asleep in the corner. Um, if yeah. you, Debbie Stag. Yeah. Um, but- <laughs> what did you think, though, Clean Out, like, the film was about? You know, because... I mean, I mean I, or more with Darren's original question. Just as someone who's just seen it, I suppose, yeah. at the end of the um, I think it's a fable, but I also think that he's basing his film around a, a novel that was serialized. Um, so I think that novel probably was much more uh, unmoored in terms of the plot. And there were probably lots of different dips in the plot mm. and adventures that he had. Almost like the first act times three, probably. Whereas this is very controlled and it's very... Um, like you said, the second act is very much the fall and the first act is the rise. And the scenes are so controlled that actually it might sound like a bit of a weird comparison, but people are criticizing Wes Anderson a lot nowadays because they say his sets are getting more and more claustrophobic and like dolls houses mm-hmm. because all his shots are straight on and it's just becoming more and more stiff and more stylized. And I kind of think it's interesting he'd get criticized for that when is this not just a different variation of that? Like oh, making yeah, well, things I mean, look like a, a painting. And even when he's grieving his only friend in the world's death, Captain Grogan, he's standing by a fire and there's two very carefully posed soldiers asleep in the hay behind him. And yeah. it looks quite quaint yeah. and almost, again, like a painting or something. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I mean, I think it's about a, a rascal who's a chancer and his look. And I also think that even though he kind of falls through life in the first half and isn't actually that scheming that it's as if they have like there's a sort of advantage in a way to having such rigid class structures because you can kind of trick your way into wealth 
And it's as if, it's like winning a hand of cards. Like he gets married and it's as if he's won the ultimate hand of cards and now he's just jumped three classes. Mm. Then, as opposed to hard work, which Barry <laughs> does not like. <laughs> By the end of the movie, like after all his rising and all his falling, isn't like the normal order restored? Like everything is kind of... Well, you have that to... really bitter, really cynical epilogue, which I think Kubrick has, has in interviews, he's basically said... What do you mean the epilogue's dark or nihilistic or cynical? everyone dies. Yeah. yeah, it just says everyone dies. We all go to the same place in the end, six feet under. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is there is that aspect of, yeah, it meaning nothing in the end. Mm-hmm. Tale told by the New Year. What did yeah. you think then, Sean, like in terms of uh, the question about like, what do you think this film is? Oh, God. Uh, when you guys said Chancer, so I mean, like we talked about the Irishness of it. So we could talk a bit more of the Irishness of it. Um, so, like, Barry goes off to, to fight in the European war, you know? And I was struck by, at the end, when when um, Lady Linden is signing the cheque. And the date on the cheque that she's signing, it's, like a fi- it's an annuity of 500 to Barry Redmond, or what, what's his actual Yeah, well, like, Redmond, Redmond Barry. Redmond yeah. Barry, yeah. yeah. And uh, the date is, like, I think it's, like, 17, um, and help me out with Irish history, guys, it's 1798, I think the date is on it. What's that, And was that the year of the uh, rebellion that yeah. happened? Yeah. So I was thinking, was that an opposite thing that Kubrick did you know is it about how well, I, mean, I don't know you could read something into that well i think there is something to be said for that like because this positions obviously it takes place around the time of the american revolution as well where george is like oh by the way thank you for raising all those soldiers for me by the way you commoner you should probably go over and fight with them yeah and i mean you have always say like um you perhaps should... raise another and yeah, go perhaps with... raise another and go with and them, go with with them. them. Ah, okay. <laughs> get out of my course <laughs> yeah uh, what are you doing here but you also have, yeah, the, they would have been around the same time as the French Revolution as well. Mm. Roughly, French Revolution would have been a couple of years earlier, possibly. 1789. 1789. So, the yeah. final scene is set in December 1789. 1789, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so it would have been around that time. So, you, I think, yeah, I think that's a very conscious choice. You have this sense of maybe revolution, perhaps. But, but I do like this idea, though, um, and it's something you were saying, Kleena, that you're in this complete world of of chaos and it's almost like what you were saying about how all we still have they still had all these old rules around violence and things like that while at the same time you you started seeing the emergence of police so for a while barry was like an informant for the the prussian police service and then you there's a great scene where after barry thinks he's shot someone in one of the duels they're like you better get out of here because the police are coming and you suddenly realize (laughs) this is just something people are organizing it's not like as you say a sort of condoned part of the law or anything but the idea that all of the... So you're at this kind of point of change between this old culture and maybe this new culture, but then you just have this guy who's just floating through it and who is solely like, where's my money coming from? I would like a comfortable life. I do not care for revolutions and wars. But Yet here I am on the front line. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well then can we talk a little bit about how he meets the Chevalier, as he's called in the movie? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So he meets him and he's meant to be spying on him. And then he, he meets him and he's meant to be saying his spiel and tricking the guy and instead he just breaks down in tears at the enthusiasm of the possibility of hearing another Irish accent yeah. because it's been so long since he's been away from home or so the narrator would like us to believe yeah. that bit I, was I love that yeah, I don't know what I was going on there and I, you have ugly crying there <laughs> and they just hug together like we are both Chancer Irishmen let's look after yeah. each other kiss me and this is the custom of her <laughs> but that, he's kind of taking a risk there because what if that guy wasn't Irish they weren't 100% sure were yeah. they what, what, what if he just spoke them. French indifferently yeah. Yeah. what if he was Hungarian yeah. and that accounted for his accent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I was thinking what if he goes to the police 
about ba- Barry. Like, I mean, I knew he was going to be several, Irish for the plot, but you know yeah. what I mean? I there remember several thinking, points though Barry does the film would have been two stupid. hours shorter. Yeah, yeah, like he doesn't really go for the safest option, but he is always just looking for the kind of comfortable option. You know, he's not out there risking his neck, but he does kind of decide this guy is more for me than, yeah. you know, mm. so the guy I, that... I think pe- people even like... Well, to be fair, the German tolerance for Barry's japes seems rather limited, not mm. to play to national stereotypes. I think there's a certain kind of an admiration even from the um, by the way everyone's a captain in this no one no one has risen to like a higher rank there was a captain John Quinn who who's like my my also my brother's name and rank. <laughs> um, and, and, and and there there's a, a captain Feeney a um, and I, I think later on the the there's um, and the, I, I believe captain Potsdorf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and it, uh, um, his uncle is Captain also Brogan. Captain, yeah, Captain Brogan. Yeah, <laughs> um, Five but, captains to a deck. <laughs> but maybe that's a card thing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's Kubrick doing something with cards. <laughs> but I, I think I think they all admire his kind of like buccaneering uh, spirit. Hmm. I to 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 one extent or yeah. another. Yeah, there I, is. I, there... I think that's certainly what. What kind of clinches it for 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 Grogan and for the Chevalier, um, and they 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 admire um, something in him. Mm. Do you think the Chevalier admires him though, because he just uses him then as a, as his assistant to help him cheat in cards? I think he does because I point out after they kind of both get out, having ripped off the Germans and like had made a break for the border with money. They, they kind of become equals and it shows yeah. them like in casinos doing their own thing. Keep as so, partner, yeah, yeah, I kind of think they were both. And even, well, the Chevalier is his best man. Yeah, <laughs> and later on, best man. I do think, and I actually really loved that scene you were, you were talking about, Kleena, where you kind of have in the middle of all this war and revolution two Irish chancer guys who just sort of like meet each other and start crying and hug each other and like let's take these people for all their work and <laughs> off they go I feel bad for the Chevalier He's, he lo- lo- loses his friend to marriage <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's another yeah film. presumably yeah. He, he just kind of like hangs around in Vienna yeah um, just on, waiting with a set like let me know when you reach your ruin. <laughs> Come back. We'll, yeah, to, we'll spend our time to, together. He always deals a, sec- a second hand. Yeah. Well, like, like at the end, the narrator said he did return to gambling. So mm. there could be a whole, uh, a yeah, whole sequel there, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's parts three and four. Yeah. It's like Chevalier is like, did you have two legs? Last <laughs> <laughs> time I saw you. Yeah. Yeah. But the other nationalities seem... You know, at best, godly. mildly disdainful about <laughs> Irish people, don't they? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, I think as Andrew was saying about like the German tolerability of some of like Barry's insta or Barry's antics. You know, he definitely goes from literally being arrested by the Germans and thrown in jail for lying to sort of being like. Actually, he has we to do like literally him. pull one of them from a fire. Yeah, like, that's he saves his life. Yeah, like a, that, a death that's, there. Yeah. That's the highest threshold that Barry has I, to pass. No, yeah. And even then, he gets a lecture about how you seem to turn out quite well despite your low social standing, complete lack of morals, <laughs> <laughs> no respect but, for authority. I actually think in that scene, that's it's the more senior guy, the, the guy who doesn't know yeah. the details, the guy who wasn't pulled from the fire who gives him the lecture, and then it's the guy he did pull from the fire beside him who's sort of looking at Barry because Barry rebukes that and sort yeah. of says well, hang on a minute, I'm a soldier. I'm doing the best job I can. And I may be hanging out with criminals, but 
I will always, you know, be loyal to the, the troop. And he no said, more. oh, I've never had any good influences in my life. I've, I've only ever <laughs> yeah. picked yeah. up picked But that's up what, what I mean. Seen, and then you know. the German guy gives him a job from that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his a lot ability, of dad stuff in this movie. Yeah. A lot his of dad ability stuff. to speak for himself. It counts for so much mm. in 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 this world, where where if you have a high esteem of yourself and and can um, can argue it to to another person, they're just like, well, you 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 do make a very good argument, <laughs> yeah, in spite of the facts. Um, <laughs> and it's actually that. interesting because something Cleaner pointed out is when he's romancing his eventual wife. You don't actually see them talk until after they're married. It's all just yeah. like lustful uh, stares. And the and first then... thing she does is, can you put out that pipe? <laughs> and he just blows smoke at her face. <laughs> if you were to look at the movie and see like how much of the talking he does, like again, in the last half hour, which I saw, hmm. uh, he didn't actually say, I think, five words. You know? Yeah, he Because he just kind of yeah. sunk into this kind of mire. But I mean, like, um, the, yeah, the seduction scene in, in the casino is entirely silent. It's, it's just looks and, and glances. Mm. And uh, he walks up and randomly kisses a woman on a balcony. Mm. And apparently they're like, hey, that, let's that, get married. That's one reason why I think this... Like Kubrick as a as a as a showrunner, I don't think like that's what we talked at the start. I don't think it would work because I don't think television lends itself to to this. I don't think you'd have to have a different product, you know, well, for not, ten not hours. Now. Not now, yeah. no, not then. But yeah. now, I mean, you have David Lynch doing like the origin of evil as the eighth episode of an eighteen part miniseries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel uh, stuff like. Um parades in like it, I, I feel like you could do something similar with 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 like a Barry Lyndon or a, a Vanity Fair with that I know yeah. I'm mixing up uh, genres <laughs> yeah. entirely I but think, that, yeah. that sort of kind of um, European um, but going back to just Sean's point about it being like something the big screen is great for because yeah. I mean it was beautiful and, and on a big mm. DVD restoration but the as I said, the time I really got into this and loved it was when it was on a giant screen and that's when you're really enveloped. And I do think I'm, you know, actually I, I don't put a whole, as much stock maybe in like the giant screens and the cinema stuff as some people, but there are some films that it, it like completely changes your perception. Oh, yeah. of them. Yeah. And this is one of them, I think. Well, I mean, a good film is a good film no matter how you watch it, but there are certain films when you put them on a big screen that just pop yeah. and this would this is one work of, in a way they don't I've tried television. to watch The Godfather on YouTube it's not <laughs> it, it doesn't work no, not on the phone no, unfortunately no, no. Um, but yeah there's there's an element of that to this like I mean because this was famously like shot using I think you mentioned this earlier lenses that were developed by NASA for looking at stars yeah um, because Kubrick wanted to shoot as much of this as possible using natural light so, and I mean, obviously, because he'd faked the moon landing, he just called in some favors, mm, and they were yeah, like, yeah, we can He already had the lenses. He just used the cameras from faking the moon landing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he keeps them handy. Well, he he did also like to own all his own equipment. Mm. Take that, conspiracy theorist. It's the moon landing that made me want to see his <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's his early work in the moon landing that <laughs> yeah. put me onto Kubrick. But, uh, yeah, so they, they actually had to develop, like, um, apertures and, like, connecting mechanisms to attach them to, like, proper movie cameras. And they had to come up with new emulsion as well in order to develop the film properly. Mm. But, like, he, that's why he was able to shoot scenes at night lit by candlelight involving actors. Yeah. Uh, which is astounding. Like, the scenes, this is just a beautiful, beautiful piece of film. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised it took us this long to talk about the fact that it was shot solely by candlelight. That was actually the first thing I ever heard about this film. And Mm. that was one of the reasons I really wanted to watch it, actually. And I think I was coming to it from, I heard it was shot in Ireland and I heard it was shot solely by candlelight. And I wasn't thinking about it 
how it was placed in amongst all the classic Kubrick films. So I wasn't coming to it as a, oh, that's the last one I'll get to. It was Mm. more, I was interested in it for those reasons. And I think I thought it was going to be a much darker film. I didn't, like, literally darker. Like, (laughs) in Candlelight. There is Um, a dead kid. Um, Oh, yeah. yeah, Pretty dark. Not dead kid dark. I mean, black dark. Yeah, Yeah, but but he has sheep drawing his Yeah, he had a sheep purse, a white sheep purse. So, like, as children's funeral But I mean, come on, you have you have like a carriage drawn by sheep you have a dead kid kids funerals are always a bummer but this one like as far as they go I like to imagine they brought back the magician as well uh, because he was just sort of mulling around (laughs) waiting for work Sorry, um, that feel, that was a strange time. It was so. hard to watch, you know, ten minutes knowing, having just been informed the child is going to die. That yeah, because yeah, yeah. the narrator the narrator basically tells you how the yeah. film's going to end. Of course, Barry will die childless as you watch him playing with the child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And broke. Yeah. Um, and in a hot um, while you see him playing with his child in a mansion mm. while rich. But yeah, in terms of, it was a beautiful film, but in terms of the solely natural light thing, I don't feel, I thought it would look more different to other films I've seen, if Mm. that makes sense. I thought it would have a really distinct, sort of hushed candlelight look to it. But actually so much of it is set during the day that it it didn't, it wasn't distracting. Like it just was like watching a normal film. Not in a dismissive way, you know what I mean? It wasn't... um, Well, I mean, like in the age of digital has made it possible to do that um, a lot more readily in the past 10, 15 years. I mean, we've seen more of that use of natural light now than there would have been in 1975. I mean, A.O. Scott, who writes for the New York Times has argued that a large part of, say, the success of the Merchant Ivory films, which are obviously completely different from the film we just watched, are down to the fact that Kubrick could get this film made and prove that you could make, like, this big oh, really? period right. drama. Yeah. Um, sort of like, you know, 17th century period drama as opposed to Romans writing chariot period yeah, drama. Yeah. Um, but it is, it was, it's an astounding technical accomplishment. But yeah. it's also so, and what you were saying, Cleo, there, so colourful. And in a way that when I think of other Kubrick films... I associate some of them with colour, but in a completely different way. Like, you think of The Shining, and I always kind of think of snow and white, and it's sort of like, even the hotel scenes have this sort of drained, dreamy quality, whereas, and I don't don't mean the black and white films he's done, but like, even some like 2001, there is sort of iconic uses of colour, and the spacesuit, and the black monolith, but this one, I just think of like sumptuous green grass and blue skies and things like that. Kubrick's films tend to be quite sterile, is, is mm. I think the aesthetic that I associate with them. And I think that's part of why I'm not as big. A, I, I appreciate his work greatly. I'm not a huge fan. Yeah. Is because they seem very cold and very sterile. This has a lot of richness in terms of just visual design to it. Yeah. I do remember admiring his Prussian uniform, which I've never stopped to think, God, that soldier's uniform looks great in a movie. Was, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that when, when the red uniforms, the British uniforms, and thinking like, they look very well tailored. And every soldier, though, had, like, the exact same one. It wasn't like, you know, you sort of see movies and... I mean, for instance, the last well, the time we did Braveheart and you're kind of looking at guys in the background who aren't maybe as dressed as nicely as the guys at the front, but this... Clothes, yeah. 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 <laughs> this was this I just haven't noticed lying around and threw it together. Thank well, you. Well, it was from the Meath. Hey! Uh, but yeah, well, I mean, they famously used actual costumes, actual period costumes. In some cases, they bought antiques. Really? Um, and they used them for various characters and then designed the costumes based off them as well. Do you think that Kubrick's making a point of it? So if you watch, this previous movie was A Clockwork Orange, you know? And you have the the characters and their, their fancy, their clothes, which are like so off the wall, you know? And this kind of unique uh, visual, um, you know... Uh, well, you have all the white, the like white the, riding the white, gear and the bow yeah. and the milk and all yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Which, which is like it's, it's like an aesthetic that is kind of almost like uh, I don't know, like super modernistic and very kind of out there. But is he trying to say that this kind of mode of, of fashion, if you look back in a period of history, you'll see just as crazy 
uh, I don't know, character um, set design. Yeah, maybe. Like that. I mean, there yeah. were a few things. Like, we all laughed aloud when Barry Lyndon's wife brought his baby in, and his baby was so dressed elaborately. Like, the baby was wearing a hat that seemed to incorporate another smaller hat on top of it. <laughs> yeah. and, With a peacock on top of yeah, it. Yeah, it was... And, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point, because... Yep. Yeah, it's there's so many things in this film that seem ridiculous, and that's actually one of them. You know? One of the best descriptions of Barry Lyndon I've read is that it feels just as alien as anything in 2001: Space Odyssey. Yeah. yeah, despite the fact that like yeah. it's shot in Ireland, and like it's those castles obviously exist, and we know that historically people wore those uniforms. It's funny, but seeing people with the white makeup and the wigs and the costumes, the moles, like the, the, mo- the fake yeah. moles everywhere yeah. in their face. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that some of, some of these kind of period movies they have it like filmed in ruins. But are we to believe that there are ruins at the time as well? Are we... the building code was just not up to scratch in those days, unfortunately. Yeah, we imagine all these lords and ladies living in, in, in these squalor. kind of like yeah. Well, I mean, there's um, the the famous story with this is that it was shot at Paris Court, and indeed mm. the film is the last record that we have of a lot of the the interior of the house. Because it burnt down, I think two months after mm. um, after the film wrapped. So a lot of what we see in the film is the interior of Powers Court House as it existed, obviously in nineteen seventy four seventy five, mm. uh, which is remarkable that it's that sort of level of preservation. One that I recognised because it would be near enough um, to where my where I suppose I grew up in in Meath was the Kells Priory, which is on the River Boyne, I think it is, or maybe River Blackwater, but it's outside Kells, and that would have looked like that then if you know what i mean because i think that was you know established in yeah 1194 or something yeah and then like wouldn't have been used would have been used for a couple of hundred years mm-hmm. but by this film would have been ruins and already that's where they that sort age, of, yeah. exactly so I, yeah i, I kind of think the film plays with that kind of thing well and plays with like what came before and now what they're doing and it's all kind of i think at, at, at the time as well artists were had had this fascination with ruins as well and the and the, the and the, the 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 kind of um, uh, analog between that and mortality, and the kind of like they put the little, little skull or like memento mori, yeah. remember you'll 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 die. But there's a lot of these kind of a and ego and so yeah, on and so yeah. forth. Yeah, but I mean, what well, I mean, you could argue that's a central point of the film as well is that no matter any, no matter what Barry does, and no matter what anybody else does, they'll all end up equal mm. in yeah. the end. In the same way, like the society they're in will be just as much a ruin, you know, to us watching it as any of the ruins that they're wandering around at the time. Can't take it with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because one of the rumors as to why he was an IRA target is that they were outraged he was filming these scenes of the British soldiers. Um, you know, and everyone's saluting them and then they're recruiting as well, aren't they, for the mm. British army. And there's yeah. a scene where they say something like, long live the king and everyone, all the Irish villagers cheer. But I don't know, I, f- I almost feel like, are, the, are people kind of making the IRA seem a bit stupid there, almost? Because the movie's not really a pro-British film. So would they just be I outraged? Guess, are you saying that Kubrick might be involved in some government conspiracy to maybe... Make the IRA here. Well, okay, we've had one <laughs> Kubrick conspiracy. Maybe it starts here. Well, the call came from British intelligence, apparently. So we should start a, a random other podcast. But I do, well, I, I, I do it... love the idea of like the IRA hearing the Kubricks filming in you know in Ireland with British people wearing British uniforms, and the one guy in like the Army Council meeting be like, "Has anybody here actually seen 2001: Space Odyssey?" <laughs> I think no, yeah, no, no. Greatest living director, anybody? No? Okay. I suppose it is their prerogative to have their own kind of version of history that they would like people to follow. <laughs> yeah. um, 
quite successfully. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, they, they, I, I can imagine that. I can, I like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I don't, they, 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 um, any kind of zealot has their own kind of version of, yeah, of even like in, in, in spite of any uh, arguments or points to the contrary, they will say like, "Oh, you're you're portraying you're portraying the Irish people as subjects to the British Crown." Well, historically inaccurate. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of um, accuracy, do you mind if we do our uh, ac- accent accuracy bit as a, yeah. as a bit of an intro? Go for it. What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here. Okay, the accents. What did everyone think? And obviously, there's obviously a chief, yes. chief culprit here. But maybe before we get to the chief culprit, what did we think about some of the other accents? I don't For remember example, any of the other Irish accents. The being... Chevalier guy was a, yeah. well, a good Irish accent. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. Nora was a bit country esque though at the yeah. start. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I a bit sort of like stereotypical, like Bigosh and Bigara. Do they say mm. what county they're all from at the beginning? They don't. They actually just say, like, Ireland, don't they? And actually, <laughs> on that, why does he choose to make Redmond Barry Irish? Is the Who wrote the novel? Oh, Thackeray. Um, Thackeray, Thackeray. William. Well, Th- Thackeray's argument was that, yeah, Ireland is a nation of liars. So therefore, a story so about a liar. Yeah, a uh-huh. character. Yeah, you, yeah you'd, you'd, you'd have to have them, like, being a northern English. <laughs> to pull that <laughs> to, off. Yeah. But no, I, I think, though, there is a, a point to them being Irish in that they are inevitably dancing between the raindrops of this imperial force. Like, there's a yeah. really nice shot of the maps in the Tudor room, which basically gives you a sense of that, where they've got a picture of the African continent outlined, mm. and they've literally only drawn half of it yet. There's a sense, this is very much like the Age of Empires. Wow. Yeah. Right. And I feel like one of the things that it captures very well is the sense that the Irish, as like a European power who were colonized, yeah. sort of having to but like also, navigate yeah. these these pathways and these structures that were set up by you know at the whim of of more powerful political entities, yeah. and also a kind of a province that's been courted by all of these other European powers with their own uh, sorts of interests. Yeah. Where, they where, say that at the start about the French possibly coming in through Ireland. Yeah, mention? that's it. Well, the, yeah. When they're doing the recruiting speech, that you know they've been motivated in some part by the belief that the French might be coming. Yeah, I think as well. It's interesting you mentioned the tutor room because I mean, obviously the stepson Lord Bullington is treated very cruelly, and you you are sympathetic to him for a good bit of the film, but it, it's obvious that it's very degrading to him that his stepfather is not of noble origins mm, yeah. but he even goes so far as to call him an insolent irish upstart yeah. when he has his final <laughs> showdown yeah. with him and it's 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 a point like a sore point for him not just that redmond barry isn't of high birth but that he's of irish birth mm, like mm. i think he thinks of that as as degrading for his mother and for him to be sort of subject to was, this. There, was, was there a kind of an irishness to to brian his his his, his, son, his younger brother yeah. I know. Well, sneaking off without permission. We called yeah. him Brian. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Brian Patrick was yeah. his That's name. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I actually kind of thought the way, um, and you mentioned it, Kleena, the mother at the start sort of said, I'm going to dedicate myself to my son, or she dedicated herself to her son. And then you later see kind of like what, you, um, what you were saying then, Darren, about you know, that, that's sort of being mirrored in the beginning of yeah, the end. And, and Bullington sort exactly, of yeah. um, And then the way Barry raises his child, though, is sort of to not respect any rules or ask, you know, everything he asks for, he's immediately given. And he has, he has great, the narrator says, Barry has great plans for Brian. 
and you kind of realize like yeah but it's not going to happen expectations great expectations more, like more, all yeah. these yeah. hopes and dreams pinned on him rather that than was the moment, plans yeah. Yeah. I, that was a moment where Athena having not seen the film before audibly said Oh. oh no! Yeah, <laughs> I, doomed. I, I like to imagine that the child was 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 also a great liar. <laughs> He's like uh, Joseph Plunkett's yeah. uh, son has a has a horse like a great big war horse, no. and it's like Joseph Plunkett. I eh? haven't heard that name before. <laughs> that I'm not going to question. Yeah. He does lie a bunch in the film where it's like, "Do not go do this." He's like, "I won't." <laughs> but in terms of accents, then. I mean, the main culprit is Ryan O'Neill. I might play a little brief clip, but this is a Ryan from the, the start of the film being robbed by two highwaymen, and it just sort of shows off the accents. Uh, excuse me, sir. Good morning again, young sir. Don't even think about it. Get down off that horse. Raise your hands high above your head, please. Come forward. Stop. How do you do? I'm Captain Feeney. Captain Feeney. Captain Feeney at your service. The Captain Feeney? None other. May I introduce you to my son, Seamus? How do you do? How do you do? To whom have I the honor of speaking? My name's Redmond Barry. How do you do, Mr. Barry? And now I'm afraid we must get on to the more regrettable stage of our brief acquaintance. Turn around and keep your hands high above your head, please. guineas and gold here father well 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 you seem to be a very well set up young gentleman sir captain feeney that's all the money my mother had in the world mightn't i be allowed to keep it i'm just one step ahead of the law myself i killed an english officer in a duel and i'm on my way to dublin till things cool down mr barry in my profession we hear many such stories Yours is one of the most intriguing and touching I've heard in many weeks. Nevertheless, I'm afraid I cannot grant your request. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll allow you to keep those fine pair of boots, which in normal circumstances I would have for myself. The next town is only five miles away, and I suggest you now start walking. Mightn't I be allowed to keep my horse? I should like to oblige you, but with people like us, we must be able to travel faster than our clients. Good day, young sir.
put down your hands now, Mr. Barry. But there, I mean, you can see there actually, I think, two actors who play the robbers doing good Irish accents in well, there... stark contrast to Ryan O'Neill's Californian take on I... I think in fairness to Ryan O'Neill, certain people have a better chance of performing a, with, with the exception of Darren. With, Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> of, of performing an Irish accent. And generally those people are, are what you call Irish. <laughs> I, 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 I find anyone who, generally speaking, who's not Irish has a very hard time by our standards of of, of it's probably of the same with any other accent. any other accent as we, well. We do answer. land on that quite a lot. In that yeah. Podcast, yeah, but even like the um, our our closest neighbours, the 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 English, or I suppose the Welsh, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sc- Scotland is technically the closest geographically to the island, but um, they generally have a terrible time. Of, uh, yeah. like, and think they have a great Irish English accent. English people and don't. are very confident often that they can do a good mm. Irish accent. Sometimes they are, like, uh, can um, uh, uh, manage it, but it's so rare. I think it's actually easier as well for an American performer to mimic an English accent than an Irish accent, even mm. if, you know, you couldn't place them in a specific region of England. Yeah. Uh, Renee Zellweger got a lot of praise for doing a good English accent in British Jones. Mm. Bridget Jones. Bridget oh, Jones. what did I say? Bridget, Bridget Jones. Jones. But it works, it works. Um, but I, I can't think of a time where an American performer was praised for their Irish accents. It doesn't, yeah. Maybe we'll get to one eventually, but off the top of my head, I don't think we've had... Gene Wilder? Oof, you mean in, in Quacks of Fortune? I can't yeah. wait till we watch that. Yeah, one. we haven't done that one yet. He, he spent a lot of time um, working uh, on, uh, or deciding on his accent and decided that he, he wanted a Dublin 6 accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, don't get that specific, you know, yeah. Dublin 6. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like O'Neill could have probably done with that level of specificity as opposed to they're always after me lucky charms. Yeah, I think... Um, it's not that bad. It's, it's bad, I but it's bad. I think the only... I think it's not bad either, I think yeah. the only... Def- I think it's bad, but I think the only defence <laughs> I'd give is that, like what you sort of said, Clina, is they're not specific about exactly where he's from in mm. Ireland. Mm. It's Ireland as an idea rather than he is from this particular county. Mm. And therefore, the other thing is, like there's a scene in the film where someone sort of says, they talk about accents and they're like, oh, you know, maybe you could pretend to be Hungarian or, you know, maybe he's pretending to be Hungarian. And they sort of, it sort of suits this character who's a bit of a zealig wandering through different European things and being different roles all the way through. It kind of suits that he has this nondescript, little bit all over the place accent at the same time it is a bad Irish accent. I think we let people off the hook all the time in movies for having travelled and we say oh but their accent sounds a little different yeah (laughs) for example yeah (laughs) born in Dublin moved moved to Ghana moved back to Sligo hence explaining my wonderful uh yeah, Dublin, Ghanaian, like a hybrid accent I've, that I have. Growing up, I was long um, accused of not having a an, an, an Irish accent or of not being Irish or working in hotels and them asking kind of, where are you from? And I say, oh, I'm from Sligo. And it's like, no, no, where are you from? <laughs> Originally. <laughs> um, we, we, um, and, and I remember in, 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 in college, somebody, somebody asking me, where are you from? And it's like, oh, I'm from Sligo. It's like, that's not how Sligo people sound. Hmm. I'm like, no, it is. Darren, come over here. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you see, we all speak this way. Exactly um, the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is an authentic uh, Sligo accent. Now, it, again, in the film's defense, the only way to get it made was to cast O'Neill. No, I know. Okay. Yeah. And I'm glad it was made. And I do think, as I said earlier, 
he is very good in parts of this film. I just think... Who else would you cast instead of him? Ooh. In the 70s? I'm about to say that yeah. if you go back to the 70s. Now imagine Jack Nicholson in the role. Mm. Um, Liam Neeson. This <laughs> <laughs> was actually just about... Maybe, yeah. Um... But yeah. he wouldn't have done anything worthy of being. No. Did you mention Sean Connery? Connery. Yeah. Did you mention Robert Redford as a? He was. He was the first choice. He was Kubrick's first choice when he was told he needed a leading man. Okay, um, I could see that maybe working. Robert Redford. He's kind of handsome, and he's just Robert Redford's good. I mean, we watched Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid recently, and he is good in that sort of. But the, but this guy Ryan O'Neill has a sort of endearing haplessness in the first yeah. half. You, of the you movie. don't believe that Redford Redford's ever out of control. Smooth, yeah. yeah, you don't believe Redford's ever. You're out never going to believe as well a woman would choose not to be with Robert Redford. You know, at the start <laughs> yeah. of, over Captain yeah, Feeney. Over Captain Feeney. That's very true. Yeah, I think he's a very good choice. And no, I think I'm. I think I'm also leaning towards yeah. He's, and he's apparently, Kubrick did the studio did actually, in fairness, I believe, suggest the possibility of a character actor instead, so someone okay. like Dustin Hoffman. And Kubrick was like, no, I will, I will take a leading man over an American character actor for this. They're role. just trouble. Could you imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the combination so, of yeah. an, an assistant character actor <laughs> and Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick together? I mean, Hoffman got his own back by playing Kubrick. <laughs> In or like some version of of, of Kubrick in oh you know, wag, the, wag dog. the dog yeah yeah I thought he was more of a wasn't he like or he's the, fake the producer he's like guy? faking the moon landing yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's kinda, true, yeah yeah that's um, very true and of course like Kubrick uh, murdered for. Um, trying uh, to reveal the secret. Uh, trying to reveal the. Uh, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> Keep it classy. By the Keep IRA. it classy. Who uh, <laughs> 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 were working with the reverse vampires. Um, <laughs> One other thing, then, we just might quickly do um, on the uh, the Irish side is would, uh, what would everyone rate this? Faith or Bigora? We have faith if its depiction of Ireland or the Irish rings true, or Bigora if it doesn't. I think we've talked about a lot of the issues already, but. Um, yeah, in light of those two choices, what would everyone uh, I think at the time, like as we mentioned, that um, Ireland was not just Ireland. Ireland was part of Britain. Ireland was part of Europe. It was just kind of one little small state in this whole European panoply, this whole European uh, wars going on. And you really get the sense that all the um, uh, Barry is kind of being sent. He goes off and he is to, goes to Europe and he gets into all these adventures. But you get the sense that Ireland is just one small part of this great big war that's going on. And... Yeah, and I, I can see what I, that makes me feel that it's going to get a fate, you know? Mm. I mean, everyone in the world almost was involved yeah. in terms of powers at the time in that Seven Years' War. So Ireland would have just been... Flotsam and Jotsam. Mm. Yeah. What about you guys? Any? Uh... I'd probably go with faith. I think it's... Philosophically, yeah. I think it's a, a yeah. very good expression of Irish historical identity and that we see ourselves as chancers. We see ourselves as... Not as a great empire. We're actually one of the few European powers who don't really have a claim to a, mm. an international empire, but we define ourselves oh, by yes. that. We, mm. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, Belgium is quivering. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm yeah. a man, yeah. The GA is going to break yeah. out, you know. So. Yeah. But, but no, a large part of how we think of ourselves yeah. is that we are charming and we are debonair and we are able to manipulate or sort of like handle the tides of fortune. But also be transplanted to another country and place and just make it work. Yeah. I think it's like... Now, I mean, it should be pointed out Barry makes it work to a certain extent before <laughs> getting crushed under the brutal heel of the yeah, class system. Yeah, that's true. I but think, I mean... Yeah, there's less a concept of being Irish at this time as well. Like mm. the concept of nationalism is only just sort of burgeoning in France at this time by the end of the film. Yeah, but I So it's more about a feeling of home when he meets the other Irish guy than, yeah. oh, another Irishman. I but think. I think that rings true, and that's what gives it a faith for yeah. me, yeah. is when he realises that 
And it is true. And I think, you know, my mum said this when she, she like traveled around and lived in a lot of different places, but she never, she found that's like talking to Irish people when she was back home. There's a completely different sense than when you're in London or Australia or anywhere else mm. talking. Well, cr- crucially, is he trying to escape his Irishness or does he, is he like, when we talk about Irishness being not a concept that might, it's mm. only really beginning to exist, but is he, is he trying to escape his Irishness through the whole picture? No, because he, well, he he's, his son Brian. he's exiled. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like through, I guess, no... Um, I think he wants to be an, an Irish lord as yeah. opposed to like completely shedding his skin. Yeah. Like, he, he, like he's not a revolutionary. He doesn't want to oh, destroy the system. No. He no. Want to oh, no, no. He wants, to, he wants to. He wants an easy there's life. A good, yeah. There's a good, <laughs> scene, there's a good <laughs> scene at the start where he's watching the British soldiers um, parade around and the narrator sort of explains Barry just sees like people paying attention to mm-hmm. well-dressed men and thinks, I want to be one of them. And yeah. like, there's no further political consideration <laughs> yeah. about joining yeah. the British yeah. army. It just so well, happened at that time that he was low on shillings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the king had plenty, it turns out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's delighted to be around the Prussian soldiers until they capture him. And yeah. then he says like, he disliked that even more. You know, it just wasn't for him. Wasn't, yeah. It wasn't to his palate kind of thing. So I, I don't think it's it's... I'd say it's actually not like a massively Irish film. And I know it's people sort of describe it as, oh, the Stanley Kubrick film that was made and shot in Ireland about an Irish character. But I also don't think it sort of doesn't ring true or isn't in the ways that it does focus on Ireland or the Irishness doesn't ring true. It's just not um, the same. And just the focus. way that the other countries view Ireland, you know, I think that, before that time, I think probably that does ring true. probably does ring true <laughs> as well. And that also goes towards faith. And, but yeah. if we look at the production of it, I mean, did, he, did Kubrick give, it, um, give chances to a lot of Irish character actors? They give a lot of chances to a lot of Irish... No, but um, I don't think there's many roles in this for that. I I don't think you have, you know, you have a central, uh, one other major Irish character. Mm. And he actually has already shown up in another great director's film made in Ireland, if you guys remember. Yes, Dementia Dementia 13. 13. He plays the priest in Dementia 13. Which, sadly, myself and Andrew will never get a chance to talk about. Oh, it's it's an interesting one. (laughs) Francis Ford Coppola, right? Yeah, shot out in Bray. But, um... I, I don't think that argument holds because he leaves, you know, very early on. There's an Irish actress as his mother. Mm. There's, um, she was very good, by the way, and doesn't seem to have really um, a photo or IMDb credits much, to speak of. Yeah. She, um, her name was... Marie, Marie Keane. Marie, Marie Keane. Keane. And yeah. the stage described her as one of Ireland's most impressive actresses and an artist of considerable emotional depth and theatrical command. Yeah. So, so, like, I feel like I recognised her, but may, maybe she had been, like, a, a, a one of these kind of Abbey or um, uh, Gaiety theatre actors. Or... She'd also been on Orty in Happy Days, for example. Oh, okay. And in David Lean's Ryan's Daughter. And her final appearance was in John Huston's The Dead, possibly. Mm. So yeah, I think that no, to the extent there were Irish characters, they cast Irish actors. Mm, Again, well, with the exception of of Gay Hamilton, who was Scottish, who played Nora. Oh yeah, that was a little put on. And that was was a little bit. But I think on the whole, but when we watch what's the what dementia? What's it called? Dementia Dementia thirteen. Yeah, we gave. I think we gave all that Vigora because it just that that was was a a good example of like a different (laughs) take on that sort of thing. But that had a lot of that was a quick really quick job it was like a week I think yeah it was like well I've got the set for two weeks or something and one of the greatest who will soon be one of the greatest working directors it's a Roger Corman film so you know sharp and fast with production (laughs) budget and everything and broad stereotypes when it came to characters what I was thinking is that you know the way okay uh, Irish people and Irish incorporated we do a great job of selling to the Americans you know Mm -hmm. and could we (laughs) Could we turn this... In the style of Barry Lyndon himself. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that literally what quacks are fortune, though? <laughs> yeah. <so> yeah. <laughs> literally. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, so I mean, spoiler for future episodes of an Irish eyes are watching. Yeah, yeah. keep so, your eyes peeled for that. Yeah. But there, there's no there's no burgeoning tourist industry around this film, is there? There's no like let's like powers courts, you know? There's nothing <laughs> like that. Powers court burned down. As... Yeah, but that doesn't stop them. That doesn't stop us, you know. I I get what you mean, but I also think that comes back to even when you watch this film, it it is kind of cold, and the first yeah. half of the film is so funny and so. Great. I mean, when we got to the intermission cleaner, you were like, I love this. And we were all a little like, well, let's just get through part two. <laughs> yeah. Because part two, it is just a sort of slide to misery. Mm. And But also, um, it's, it's a cold, kind of sterile mm. film in a way that a lot of silly other films that were made in Ireland that we have tourist industry stuff around... Yeah. No, isn't. But if you and... com- if you compare this to Ryan's daughter, Ryan's daughter is an epic, you know, that's trying to become on a, like a small scale, but there are e- epic scenes in it, you know. Mm. And you could argue that this is a type of epic, but it's almost kind of undercutting the epicness of it and trying to say that, you know, Barry is not an epic hero, but the scale of it, you know, this like the, the battle scenes and the richness of it. I think yeah, I think Thackeray's novel has been described as one of the first without a hero. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think that probably goes into this idea though of this being a film that, and to sort of like summarize. We were talking about it when we started talking about it in the, the context of Kubrick's films. And now we're talking about it in the context of like other Irish films and how people still go to the Ryan's Daughter section mm. and all these different sort of like tours and sets in Ireland. But this doesn't seem to have the same sort of following around it. And I kind of think it's, it's exactly that. It's too weird a film. And I think when it came out, as you mentioned, it, it wasn't sort of greeted by... It was greeted by a lot of technical praise, but a lot of people didn't get it, like a lot of Kubrick's films. And it's still one that... People, yeah, there isn't the same sort of like consensus on even now, and it it doesn't fit snugly into Irish tourism boards or even as you say, yes. like yeah, maybe yes, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think vision, it ever yeah. will. It's I think it's too weird, you know, yeah. and I think it's great for being weird, mm-hmm. but it's it's yeah. not one that you're going to be doing, yeah, tours of. of I mean, it should, should be noted that like in the context of the time, it, the highest grossing film in 1975 was Jaws, and the one that swept the Oscars was one of the Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you can see why it would be yeah. overshadowed, not even in the context of Kubrick films, not even in the context of films mm-hmm. about Ireland, even the context of films released in 1975. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then, like, on the final point, it's also about someone who, who doesn't go to Ireland. It's about someone getting away from Ireland. Well, which is most like, Irish films are. Which are, are yeah. yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> watch Sing Street. Like, yeah, Sing Street yeah. literally get out of the characters being terrible. like, yeah. how yeah. can we possibly get out of Ireland? And the happy ending is, like, them just being in the sea is yeah. better. <laughs> We're not even going to show them making drowned, it. Yeah. Even if they drown, it's a happy ending. Was that uh, David Ehrlich's observation that the Irish Film Board should probably stop funding movies about how great it is to leave Ireland? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, they should, it should probably expunge all like of our cultural history if they want to avoid the point of, of, of <laughs> great Irish people leaving. Yeah, um, they, yeah like, like they... they they should uh, dig up Oscar Wilde from Perilous Heads and bring him back and uh, t- well, let take, us kiss the grave here. Yeah. Yeah. Take <laughs> Joyce back from whatever kind of... The other graveyard in Paris, in, isn't he? Uh, oh, sorry. Or is, he in, is he in Geneva it's or Zurich Paris, or somewhere? I can't remember. Um, Zurich, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, back, um, James Joyce? He is in Zurich. Yeah. I think. Well, to listen to the end of this film, he's not anywhere. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. He's he's the same place as everybody else in this film had they actually existed. Oh yes, correct. 
But Bar- Barry's, uh, Barry's great failure is actually he returns. He's actually forced to return to Ireland. That's his great failure. I thought he died on the continent, <laughs> though. Did they not say he died no, on the continent? No, they did mention Galilee? going back to his to live with his mother and then eventually the continent. So the film, like, I like ends, that, makes it even sadder. Yeah, it's like yeah, going back to live with, with his mom. He's home. just waiting for his annuity for the check to clear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And the worst yeah. thing about it is that the mother's delighted. She's playing cards like, got my boy back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is yeah, there is a lot of weird, creepy mom and dad stuff in the film as well. It's not weird, creepy family stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, there's the moment. Yeah, there's a moment where Lord Bullington catches uh, Barry cheating with the nanny, and he's like, "Oh, don't worry, mom." And they just lock eyes though, as well. They just like see each other. (laughs) But you have Lord Lord, little Lord Bullington at the age of like four, reaching Mm. up and holding his mother's hand as if to say, "Oh, don't worry, mom. You'll Mm. always have me." Speaking Mm. of the little baby who's who's kind of uh, been been taken out um, to to. <laughs> to, to, as as a kind of um, conversation starter, yeah, yeah, it's like icebreaker. Oh, hi, uh, maid. Uh, I see you have my baby there. You want to maybe make out? And uh, but but it, it's spe- speaking of this baby, I really appreciated the baby acting in this. There was baby. a lot of good oh, baby I, acting. Really great that. baby acting. I but thought the yeah the the German. Um, Kind of well, not war widow, but the the the, the German baby was. Is that not in yeah. Holland? Did I not say he was? No, I think he was on the way to Holland. Yeah, because Holland was, was neutral, but yeah. he obviously got stopped before then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if yeah. he hadn't spent all of that time, <laughs> yeah, five days, uh, <laughs> five should, days, yeah. should have just stayed there with that baby, that hilarious baby, and that beautiful. Which baby. had a wonderful reaction shot. The best part of yeah. himself and the you know war widow in inverted commas kissing was the baby's reaction, which amounted to "I, I want the food on the plate." Mm. And what are these two people doing? Yeah, come on, I love them. <laughs> yeah. 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 Let's not forget who the most important character in this scene is. Damn it! Yeah. This was not part of my deal. But then later you have the um, baby uh, Brian Patrick, who who I thought was fantastic. Mm. There was there was there was there was there was a lot of kind of like uh, him looking at mm. the at the ca- at the crew, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the sound people, yeah. <laughs> like how, oh, look at how all those much people. would that have annoyed Kubrick? Like the perfect shot, I mean, like slow zoom out of like a child and the woman staying still, and then gets to the baby who's just like sucking that stuff, <laughs> flinging stuff around, <laughs> probably. Tried to tape his arms down or something. Yeah. Know, apparently, Kubrick was great with kids. Okay, uh, right. just so actors. You get to a certain age, and then yeah, that's it. And then, well, I mean, you could you could kind of sort of see that in the obligatory flogging sequences because I like the film. Again, you want to talk about the film symmetry. Flogging is like a recurring motif in there. It's like you have the scene where Barry flogs his, you know, the young Lord Billington, hmm. and it's like Ryan O'Neill is clearly his back's not into it. There's yeah. no sense that Kubrick was like, okay, take forty-seven. I really want you to give it to him. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, okay, we're gonna flog Leon Vitali. I want you to just go for it. Yeah. Because um, children aren't truly actors because they still have aren't fully formed adults. They still have the choice to not be an actor. <laughs> so it's like let's not punish them until yeah. until they're like responsible for their for their choices, choices that they yeah. made. It's really their parents' fault that they're here making my <laughs> yeah, life difficult. Yeah. She could yeah yeah get the like child actors' parents and give them a whipping instead. <laughs> um, so I mean, just in terms of our podcast and, and questions that we sort of typically ask. I mean, we normally ask these before we go into the spoiler zone, but this is a, a you know an episode that's kind of all format. Like, would this be? How would this rank? Would would you put this on the two fifty? How would you rank it on the two fifty? Is it your favorite Kubrick film? Where does it rank in terms of that? Is it better? La la la. Um, <laughs> I would put it on the two fifty first of all. Um, in terms of like, where does it rank in the Kubrick films? For a while, I'm, I definitely was thinking this one was up there, but I've seen a few Kubrick films recently, and seeing that again, it's very good, but I just don't think it's... it's. 
you know, up there for the, the Kubrick ones for me. What's, that, what's everyone's favorite Kubrick movie then? Can we say that? The Shining. Shining. Yeah, The Shining for me too. I quite like Clockwork Orange. That's um, the first one I saw, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, Spart- I'm a Spartacus fan, but didn't he disown Spartacus? He didn't really. Yeah, well, Spartacus fully, is yeah. more yeah, Kirk Douglas. Kind of one film. for them. Yeah, mm. well, it gives me the freedom to go and do whatever yeah. the hell I want for the next little while. Basically, I, I think I like him being tempered, so I'm going to say. That. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Kayla? What was your favorite Kubrick movie? I think I'll have to go for The Shining. Yeah, but yeah. It's just too close to being perfect. Mm. Um, kind of, now I kind of want to know what what the distance is. Mm. <laughs> what is the distance? I, the distance is, it's always the last sequence for me, which is, well, we won't get into it, but yeah, maybe uh, <laughs> some other time we'll get okay. into it, the last sequence. I just think it's a little bit too mad, a little bit too over the top. But anyway. This movie's better than Eyes Wide Shut. But Eyes Wide Shut is the movie, Yeah, I think, he, it's debatable whether he finished. I like, like Eyes Wide Shut in the third same way I like Conspiracy this. theory yeah. of the episode, like by the way. Did he return to <laughs> yeah. Barry Lyndon to do Eyes Wide Shut? No, no, but I mean, no, also the who actually finished directing Barry Lyndon, uh, sorry, Eyes Wide Shut and all this sort of stuff, mm. the conspiracy theory. It's not really a Hubert film. Oh, it is really a Hubert mm. film. Oh, he finished it before he died. No, he didn't finish it before he died. Yeah. But it is. I, I think that Eyes Wide Shut is very Barry Lyndon-esque. Yeah. Was there a movie AI? Or... Well, that was, that was the Spielberg one. Yeah, we're, we're, the, I think the, Kubrick was developing it to a point, and right. then realized it was, and then either died or wasn't as interested in finishing it as, and then the marketing kind of made it seem like it was a sort of collaboration between Spielberg, yeah, and, and Kubrick, and Kubrick. And I would argue that yeah, Spielberg's Kubrick stuff is the stuff after AI more, yeah, sort of where you have that sort of sense of like the creeping disdain for the human beings that yeah. occupy the planet in yeah. films like Wars, War of the I'm, World. I'm going to make Munich and cut or like Munich, an assassination yeah. scene and a sex scene together and to yeah. demonstrate yeah. just how pointless human existence is. Yeah, I'm um, glad someone's saying it. Sorry, what were been you thinking that for a while? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, th- I think that Eyes Wide Shut is very much it is an extension of Barry Lyndon. I think in some ways, like I would argue, it's the spiritual companion in Kubrick's filmography. Yeah, um, yeah so I mean, I'd, I'd put it in. I'd say there's definitely worse ones. Put it that way in the 250. That's the way I'd look. That's at the it. way yeah. I look at it. As it's well. the help threshold. Yeah. It's the is this movie better than the help? Better than the help. Yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> the, the answer is almost always yes. So yeah. maybe another question you could ask is what movie of Kubrick's wouldn't you put in the 250? Uh, Keep in mind, a lot of them have been in, actually. Just only a couple have dropped out. Well, so, what's not in at the moment? So what's not in at the moment is uh, Lolita isn't in, um, and Eyes Wide Shut isn't in, and obviously The Killing isn't in. Uh, but I think Spartacus is in, Strange Love is in, Space Odyssey's in, Clockwork Orange is in, Linden's in, The Shining's in, Full Metal Jacket's in. Okay. So it's a pretty solid run. In fact, I think he's tied with um, Spielberg and now Nolan um, as the most ranked director on the list. Presume none of his like early ones we don't count, like fear and desire and stuff are on there. No, not at the moment. Um, we'll just take a look and actually see what's been in and, and sort of what's dropped off in terms of like Kubrick films, because um, again, there was a while when every Kubrick film was on there, and this again, this is one that only came in. Lyndon only came in after his death, mm. for example. Um, I think I think Lyndon deserves its place there. I think. Is yeah. the, I, well, I suppose the, the, moon, the moon landing isn't technically <laughs> that a, isn't technically a feature film. Yeah. It doesn't really work in those get terms. Major release on it. No, <laughs> yeah. well, it was also a television film, really. If you want to talk Terminator about, Two, the ride though was <laughs> famously <laughs> Terminator Two made the IMDb two fifty. Wait, um, the ride film? <laughs> yes, the ride film. I done. I did that ride when I was in LA. It's a, it's pretty fantastic. But <laughs> is it better than the help? Yeah, there's you know what I'm gonna say. Yeah, yeah. is it's it? A bit of a, it's it's the 
did this thing where you're watching Schwarzenegger on a, yes. a motorbike, but then an a actor who looks like yeah. Schwarzenegger drives out of the screen and like up the cinema and starts shooting at the Terminator That's like the amazing. other guy. It was I incredible. Know, it's yeah. great. Uh, is it one of your top 250 experiences in the cinema? I don't really care. <laughs> it probably would be on the list. Definitely, yeah, 250. So God. yeah, and not currently on the list are sorry, the killing Spartacus and Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Of um, his like big ones. Of his well, of, of yeah, of his big ones. Of the ones that previously made the list. Yeah. Spartacus um, is not there. What Spartacus isn't there? Spartacus dropped out. Wow. Um, I can tell you when Spartacus dropped out as well. Make Spart- room for the help in La La Land. Yeah, Spartacus dropped out in 2012. Okay, so that's, that's disappointing because yeah. I, right. I think Spartacus is the most enjoyable. Pass the glory is there actually, which is surprising. In fairness to the help, I should probably see it before I use it as a punchline <laughs> for every. <laughs> okay, how about what was it? The Benedict Cumberbatch, the Imitation Game, because that was there I for ages. I haven't seen that either. Oh, it's it's and- just. It's, it's fine. Adequate. It's one of these yeah, like Oscar. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. First to the Black Pearl is probably one of, one of the. Well, I mean, it's a democratic list. So. <laughs> I like that. The People's yeah. Will must well, be respected. Out of movies you don't I've like seen. Curse of the Black Pearl. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, is it one of the best movies ever made? Out it's of, a good pirate movie. Out it's of movies. Probably one of the best pirate movies ever made. Is it better than Hook? You have to have a few pirate no. movies on there. <laughs> I, think, oh, no. I like that. What, what's your threshold for pirate movies? I, yeah. Captain it's, Phillips. <laughs> I am the captain. <laughs> oh, that um, animated movie. Captain oh, the the, the, the art, the art movie. Oh, in Adventures for Scientists. That one's good. Yes. That's a good one. And I'm kind of disappointed that never developed into a franchise. Where it's I like, know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Adventures with Ornithologists. Yeah, so yeah. the possibilities are endless. Yeah, that was that was good. I right. think I I think I've said that the 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 movie I'd take out would be the um, what is it, the Deathly Hallows Part Two. <laughs> Because it's not even a it's movie not a of movie. itself. No, like, fair enough, there's lots of Harry Potter fans, but there aren't even that many Harry Potter films on the list, so... Um, Part two is a bit strange, yeah. yeah. Yeah, of the one film that happens to be on the list, which yeah. is... That's weird. But is that not just a culmination of all of them? I mean, is that just like representing all of them? <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. Like yeah. a standard the bearer. Yeah. 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 It's I, also I, far I from the best The gave, uh, you know, Return of the King the Oscar. You know, <laughs> just, like the public vote gives yeah. Deathly yeah. Hollows Part two. two are better. Mm. Lord of the Rings. Okay, well, with that in mind, then, I think we'll sort of we'll wrap up. But if people are looking to find you guys online, uh, where can people get a bit more when Irish eyes are watching? Sure, I think we actually now have moved up the Google rankings sufficiently. Yay! So, yeah, if you Yay! Google when Irish eyes are watching, we are the number one result. The Ooh. scientific paper someone wrote years ago is now moved <laughs> down to number two. Um, we also are on Twitter at the awkward handle W-I-E-A-W podcast. Catchy. Is there I an underscore? <laughs> uh, no, there's no underscore. We locked that down. Yeah, no okay. one else wanted that one. And um, yeah, we have a website, and we're on like iTunes and Stitcher and all the other like. Um, we're at, we have a SoundCloud page and all. And if you search for all those, it should be grand. Yeah, we are not the only 250 podcast. So if you search oh, for the 250 really? in Google, no, you will get us. You will get us eventually. You just have to do a bit of looking. Okay. I, f- I feel like we're at at this point. We may be the most prolific, or certainly yes. the the most frequently to claim that we're the most prolific. We're claiming right now. Yeah, most prolific um, claiming we're most prolific. Yeah, I, I think we're the, the people who haven't given up yet. Yeah, I, I mean, if if uh, they, there there's a likelihood that somebody's listening to this. On our feed, as well as when Irish eyes are watching. Irish eyes are watching. Our combined listeners, all three of them, are very happy with. On that note. We'll uh, probably wrap up as well. Thank you both to Andrew and Darren um, for coming along. And I would encourage you, obviously, to uh, follow, you know, do an actual search for the 250. And even though they aren't the only 250 one on there, 
they're the better one, I'm sure. Do in you guys, letters. Yeah, do you letters. guys know what the other podcast uh, is? The Georgetown Voice, which is a student newspaper, oh, does yeah. a 250 podcast. And there's also Mission 250, which hasn't been updated since, I think, like 2014. Okay. So, I mean, those guys are just clogging it up at this yeah. stage. I mean, cease and desist order against those. Yeah, guys. well, I mean, the, the Georgetown Voice doesn't even do podcasts between like April and September. Yeah, well, <laughs> not that you've been watching her. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Keeping an eye on. Yeah. Well, if you want to keep an eye on our podcast, we're on iTunes, Twitter, Stitcher, and all the rest. We appreciate any follows, or ratings, or anything like that. Our next episode will be on Waking Ned, or Waking Ned Divine, as it's known, I believe, in America. Um, I guess if, if we're doing plugs, I, I'd like to seed my plug to the campaign that's going on at the moment with to get Robocop under 250. Because it, it's, 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 it's went from, I think it was seven and a half. To seven point nine, like since we've been since we've been talking about it, I, I feel like you think we can if, push it over the edge. I feel like if there's a real push from all our three listeners to get it up to around eight point three, you can stop then. Okay. And, and maybe the next time we're 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 well, talking, then, may, may even be on the list. This is the remake or the original. No, you're 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 right. We uh, we should be clear. Um, don't go, uh, don't waste your. Oh, no, nobody wants to be talking about the Joel Kinnerman movie. Um, Michael Keaton wasn't bad in it. And starring Oscar winner Gary Oldman as the guy who oh. made the Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> that's in the that guy man. who made the Robocop. He's the scientist, yeah. I like that. I like that's the CV reference. So yeah, get out and vote for, give it, give it a 10 out of 10, if that's the way you feel. <laughs> hint, hint. You can also find us online at, at the 250 spelled using real letters. Uh, we are also on SoundCloud. Um... And yeah, our feeds are available on wherever good podcasts are sold. So take it easy, guys, and we will be back next oh, week. Oh, oh no, wait, do, 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 do Sean or Kleena have uh, anything they'd like to... No, do? I think Alex spoke for all those. Alex is our, as our leader. Our plug. Our plug. Oh, oh, excellent. Well, I, I, when, you, when you said I was going to see my plug, something like, like, like International <laughs> Women's Day. <laughs> no, it's, it's far more important. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Right now in southern Sudan, um, <laughs> there are people who can only watch movies on the 250 but have been deprived Robocop. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You're, you're three. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> you're 250. Your uh, 250 vote will go a long uh, way yeah. um, towards making their pop culture. Palatable. Yeah, 250 is only the price of a coffee. <laughs> it's not even the price of a coffee. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, so take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking about Seven Samurai with uh, wonderful guest Chris Laverick. Very Before I play everyone out with a selection from the Barry Lyndon soundtrack, I wanted to thank our guests, Andrew and Darren. Thank you. Thank thanks you. for having us on. No, it's great. Sure. And thanks, Sean. It's a great soundtrack. Thank you. And thanks, Lena. Thank you. I wonder which part of the soundtrack he's going to choose. <laughs> that was the question. Here it is. <laughs> I could listen to this forever. It's fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> For three hours and 23 minutes. It actually stopped at one point and I was like, no, I, I wish it was still playing. But why not?